What a time to be alive, baby. Super Bowl week is always the single best week of the year, and we're only two months into 2022, by the way, and I think that the Cincinnati Bengals are going to pull off a massive upset against the Los Angeles Rams and come away with the Super Bowl victory. Plus, there's been a surprise team that's been quietly contending in the NBA's Eastern Conference. I think they need to make a massive move before the trade deadline. I'll tell you who that is next on Stern Spotlight. I might be crazy. I might be nuts. I might be delusional, but I don't care. I'm making a bold prediction and saying that the Cincinnati Bengals are going to finish their improbable run on Sunday with a Lombardi trophy in their hands. While my head says that the LA Rams are going to win the Super Bowl, my gut just tells me that the Bengals will fly back to Cincinnati as Super Bowl champions. The story with the Bengals is simply too good not to have a climatic feel-good ending. This was an organization and a team that coming into the season was viewed as the bad news bears of professional football. Nobody thought in a division with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Ben Roethlisberger and the Baltimore Ravens and Lamar Jackson that Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals would be making the playoffs let alone making a Super Bowl. Remember, this is an organization that hadn't won a playoff game since 1991. That's a long time. Somebody wouldn't even be wrong in saying that's a lifetime ago because 31 years is essentially a generation. There have been people who have gone from being newborns to infants to full-fledged adults without watching the Cincinnati Bengals have any real success. Maybe there's no such thing in professional sports as being due. And honestly, I hate when people say that because the game's played on the field and teams don't really go through ups and downs as frequently as one might think. So in that regard, nobody's ever due for anything in sports. But this year, all of the cards are aligning for the Cincinnati Bengals to defy all odds once again. They had to beat the top-seeded Titans in the divisional round. And then they had to go into Arrowhead Stadium, of all places. Very difficult place to play. And erase an 18-point deficit to beat the big bad boy Kansas City Chiefs. Neither of those things was easy. And behind two game-winning kicks from Evan, ice in his veins McPherson. I'm going to call him ice in his veins because he had two massive kicks down the stretch and didn't appear to be phased at all. It's pretty amazing what this guy did in this year's postseason, and he deserves a lot of credit and recognition because behind his foot, they were able to pull off two scrappy upset victories. And in the championship game, we had a deja vu moment. Okay, remember in overtime where it looked like Joe Burrow would end the game and Josh Allen's bench-bound book club playing golf somewhere in February? Because in the week before, Josh Allen led his team back in the game, and we were kind of going back and forth for a little bit, but the moment that the Chiefs won the toss and got the ball to begin overtime, we knew Josh Allen wasn't seeing the field. We knew that the Bills were going to go home as losers and that we weren't going to be able to erase this narrative about the Bills choking in the postseason. Remember the narrative that's gone back decades? It's gone back as far as the Bills losing four consecutive Super Bowls. So we had a here we go again type of moment when we saw Joe Burrow sitting on the bench and we said to ourselves, Mahomes is going to win this game. 
It's going to be over. And we're going to have the same debate about overtime rules that we had the week before. Because the entire debate on sports talk radio shows the week before was that overtime needs to be expanded so that both teams can see the football. When you can win a game on a touchdown on the first possession, that leaves the other quarterback on the bench. That's just not fair. And we're living in a very unfair world and sports are no different, but a lot of people wanted to see that rule change. And with Cincinnati, it seemed like we were going to be having the same conversation and the same debate as we had the week prior. Only this time it was going to be more intense because Mahomes would have been bailed out by getting the ball first in overtime twice. Speaking of bad boy Burrow, though, he deserves a ton of credit for this team's amazing turnaround. As a matter of fact, I'll even take that a step further and say that they would not have had the success they did this year without Joe Burrow. It's amazing to me that after 10 starts in his rookie season, we were wondering what the future would look like when he tore his ACL. Torn ACLs are one of the most difficult injuries to come back from, and they're even harder to come back from when you're a rookie quarterback. Remember when Robert Griffin III burst onto the scene in his rookie season? Everyone was saying that he was going to be the next great quarterback in the league for the next decade. He was incredible. He was one of the first true dual threat guys in the sport who really can run around everywhere. He reminded all of us of Michael Vick. Then he tore his ACL and he was never the same. He was never even a starter anywhere else he went after that torn ACL. So that's a very difficult injury for a young quarterback to come back from. And let's not lose that in the equation here because that in of itself is remarkable. There was a chance at one point in time that Joe Burrow would sit out at least part of this year, if not the entire thing, to preserve his knee and to fully recover from what's typically a devastating injury. Chris Collinsworth, the analyst for the Super Bowl, even came out earlier this week and said, you know, I told him to sit out this entire season. I didn't think that he didn't think that the Bengals were going to compete anyway. Take a later redshirt year, if you will to fully recover and make sure that you're good for next season. Good thing he didn't do that because they wouldn't be playing in the Super Bowl now. And instead of sitting out anytime, he's led the howling and growling Bengals through an improbable, difficult run and into the Super Bowl. How amazing is that? Burrow shows up to play and he plays his best football in the fourth quarter. That's also a really rare attribute of young quarterbacks. Even veterans, guys like Jimmy Garoppolo and Matthew Stafford, who I'll talk about in a moment, have struggled in the fourth quarter during this year's postseason. Joe Burrow is completely different. In the game against the Chiefs, he went seven for eight in his final two drives and had two uh, first down conversions on third and longs. How impressive is that? It's incredible. Oh, and by the way, he did that on the road when the team was trailing. So playing your best football down the stretch is very Tom Brady-esque in my mind. That's why I kind of want to put Burrow on that type of an elite level already. And he also doesn't flinch when the going gets tough. In the divisional round against Tennessee, the guy was sacked eight times. Eight times. He was sitting on his butt half of the time practically. Yet each time he got up and got up, and got up again. 
didn't phase him that his offensive line couldn't keep up with the Titans pass rush. He just found a way to get the ball out quicker, relied on his receivers, and had the confidence that the worm would finally turn around. Most young quarterbacks aren't able to do that. And he's also just an incredible leader. I mean, he has this quiet, oozing confidence to him that's contagious. I feel it listening to him talk in press conferences. His teammates feel it when they're sitting next to him on the bench. You see that they, these guys know how to fight through adversity as a team, and that's largely because of Joe Burrow and what he does for their confidence, helping them feel like they're in a game no matter what the scoreboard may say, and under, helping, helping those guys understand the amount of talent that they have and that they can erase any deficit no matter how large it is. Most of all, though, I'm going against the grain and taking Cincinnati because they match up really, really well with the Rams. Both teams are built around extremely potent offenses. The Rams have Odell Beckham and Cooper Cup at the receiver position, Cam Akers in the backfield, and Matthew Stafford, who's ripped off three straight wins after losing three times in the postseason during his entire tenure with Detroit. But... In the offense department, I'm giving the edge to the Bengals because I think Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, and Tyler Boyd are more talented as a group than the Rams' entire offense. And that goes a long way. I think that they're going to have more sustained drives in the Super Bowl. I think that they're able to move the sticks on third down, which is key. They're able to consistently get first downs. They're able to have good drives that either end in the end zone or with McPherson kicking the ball through the uprights. And I also think because of that, they're going to be able to play keep away. Now, if the Rams are sitting on the sidelines the entire game and the Bengals defense isn't forced to stay out there and hang with the Rams for a very long time, I think that Cincinnati has an excellent chance not just to win the game, but to potentially get some distance and build a double-digit lead or something of that nature. And playing keep away against the Rams is that much more important because we know how quickly they can score points. I mean, they put up four touchdowns before I could even turn around and blink against the Buccaneers. Ultimately, I also think that the Bengals have the endurance and the stamina to outlast the Rams in a 60-minute game. We all have seen throughout the postseason how incredibly inconsistent the Rams are as a whole. As good as that first half against the Buccaneers was, and it was incredible because they built a massive lead against them, they completely collapsed in the second half. They turned the ball over four times, they opened the door for Tom Brady to get back in that game, and they almost lost. People forget that they had to drive down the field for a game-winning field goal to stop the bleeding very quickly. Because the foregone conclusion about Matthew Stafford choking in the postseason almost came back after that round. Even last week in the championship game against the Niners, when they were at home, they had a horrible, horrible third quarter, and they had to overcome a 10-point deficit. If it weren't for Jimmy Garoppolo's inconsistency, I don't necessarily know if they're able to do that. So I'm not trusting the Rams to play very good throughout the course of the game, and I, I think they'll have flashes and bursts, but is that enough to win? I don't know. That's part of the reason I'm taking the Bengals. Every Super Bowl, though, has a narrative and a storyline to it. Last year, it was Tom Brady winning his first Super Bowl without Bill Belichick. In year one, going somewhere else and doing it. 
The year before, it was about Patrick Mahomes winning a Super Bowl in his third season in the league and second as as the starter, and how the Chiefs were going to be a dynasty that no one could get near for the next decade. This year, I think Cincinnati breaking the championship curse and riding the magic carpet past the finish line will be what everyone talks about. With the NBA's Eastern Conference being wide open this season, it's time for Philadelphia 76ers general manager Daryl Morey to go all in on this team by making a massive splashy trade at the trade deadline. Even though the Sixers are the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference, just a game and a half separates them from the top spot in the East. If the Sixers go on a run, they could easily be the number one seed in the span of two weeks. As a matter of fact, there's such little separation that just four and a half games are between the eighth-seeded Boston Celtics and the first-place Miami Heat. There's blood in the water for those who can figure out how to actually figure it out because no one has claimed and dominated this conference the way the Bucks and the Nets did last season. Brooklyn, who sits directly above Boston right now, was widely viewed as the favorites to win the conference coming into the year with James Harden and Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving potentially coming back at some point. But that team has crumbled and disintegrated into thin air. They're on an eight-game losing streak right now. James Harden looks like he wants out of town. I wouldn't be surprised if he was traded before the deadline. And at this rate, it looks like the Nets could miss out on the playoffs entirely. I never thought I would say something like that coming into the season, but yet here we are. There's really no top dog this year. I understand that the Bucs, by virtue of winning the NBA Finals last year, are believed to be one of the top teams. Miami looks to be really good. And the Chicago Bulls are having a resurgence year this year as well. But all of those teams have their flaws. Right now, the Sixers are the best position to go on a run in the second half of the season and into the playoffs. To win down the stretch and in the postseason in the NBA, you need to play well on the road. And at 18 and 10 away from the Wells Fargo Center, the Sixers have played their best basketball on the road. Their resume checks out really well. You can't just expect to win games at home and then steal one or two on the road in the finals because the postseason doesn't work that way. You have to be able to go into those types of hostile environments and find a way to win ballgames. The Suns and the Grizzlies are the only two better road teams in the league, and both are widely viewed as favorites to win the Western Conference. The Suns are the first-ranked team in the Western Conference, have the best record in the league, and the Grizzlies are seated third. From a wins and losses perspective, the Sixers have what it takes to hang with the best teams in the league because they're good at winning on the road, and they have a pretty darn good record as well. As a matter of fact, it's odd that they almost need to figure out how to win games at home because they haven't been able to do that at the same rate of consistency. And with all that went on before the season, I almost forgot up until recently that Ben Simmons even existed. Once his name started to be brought up in trade rumors, I was like, oh, that guy again. Because I didn't even remember that he was even technically on the team or the crybaby drama and all the other difficulty they had with him before the season. Heck, at this point, I'd consider buying Ben Simmons an island just to get rid of him. I don't even want his name tied to the Sixers if I'm a Sixers fan at this point, because he's been nothing but trouble. 
He's been a drama queen. He's been a baby. He's gone out and bought new cars and new houses and new this and new that. But dude can't even show up to basketball practice without a phone in his pocket and creating trouble with the coaches? Uh-uh. I don't care what he brings to the table. I want him gone. And given how well this team has gelled and come together and played without him, ironically enough, the last thing they need is more Ben Simmons drama. They don't need that. They found their rhythm on their own. And they have a really good supporting cast and a foundation that they've built off. And it does not involve Ben Simmons. Without Simmons the sissy, the Sixers have looked like a much better team. Joel Embiid is having a career year. He should win MVP by all indications. 29.3 points per game, doing a great job crashing the boards as always. Has evolved into a table setter type of role with this team as well. And he's been a lot more selfless with the basketball this season than he was in years past. Which is interesting because his supporting cast coming into the year wasn't nearly as good. Seth Curry has also carved out a really nice role for himself. At his previous stops in Dallas and other places, he wasn't really a go-to scorer. This year, he has a career high in points per game. He's not afraid to shoot the basketball anymore. He doesn't think like that he has to give the ball up. And on the offensive end of the floor, he's become a player that I didn't even know existed. Honestly, to some degree, he looks like his brother knocking down shots from all different spots, dishing the ball around, shooting a bunch of three balls. It's been really impressive to watch Seth Curry. But I could not talk about the Sixers' core this season without giving a special massive shout-out to the main man involved who's been the catalyst for all of this. How about Tyrese Maxey? He stepped in extremely admirably for Simmons at the point guard position. He's been much better offensively than Simmons was at any point in his career, as a matter of fact. And man, has Tyrese Maxey been clutch with the buzzer beaters, big plays down the stretch, protecting the basketball. And he's been a pleasant surprise as well. Nobody, not Daryl Morey, not any of the scouts involved in the draft process, expected Tyrese Maxey in year two to be scoring 16.9 points per game. It's very rare to find someone like that in the later portion of the first round in the NBA draft. I think there's some metric that once you get after pick 10, you're less likely to find even a bench player. They found a starter who stepped in and done an extremely good job. So that's a win. And you have to give credit to the guys at top for being able to do that. But unfortunately, as well as this team has played and overachieved given all of the circumstances and cards stacked against them, it feels like they're just missing something. For me, it's really hard to pinpoint what exactly the Philadelphia 76ers are missing because they're a complete team top to bottom. They have stars on the roster and they have a nice supporting cast, but they just need a little bit of extra oomph to take their game to the next level. I could see them using an extra bench piece because they don't really have as much depth on the second team. And when the starters get tired, you need guys who can come off the bench and score. So maybe that's what they're lacking. I could also see them going out and getting another go-to score because while Maxi is good and Embiid is really good as well, once teams start doubling Embiid in the paint and trying to take away the jumper and the turnaround layup and the dunk, 
it's a lot harder for the Sixers to score. And that's just based on my eye test of watching the team. They're not nearly as good at knocking down shots from the perimeter. Now, I'll give Curry and Maxi and Harris credit for getting hot from time to time. This team isn't winning games shooting three balls, so I think you need another scorer as well. I also think potentially they could use like a defensive ace, a big rim protector who keeps teams out of the paint and flips the script a little bit. If you have the Twin Towers with Embiid and another really big guy down there, I think that could be a meaningful addition. So there's a lot of different types of pieces that they don't necessarily need, but it would be nice to go out and get them because I think it would certainly aid in a potential finals run. Obviously, the guy that everyone wants to talk about and tie to the Philadelphia 76ers is the man that everyone wants on their team right now, and that is James Harden. He would make a lot of sense for a ton of different reasons. You could put Maxi at the two, Harden at the one. All of a sudden, this team is dropping 120 points a game and outscoring everyone. Sounds nice, doesn't it? But that only works in a theoretical universe. And basketball, as far as I'm concerned, is played on a hardwood floor, not in theory. So, I mean, I don't necessarily know how Harden would mash and gel with the other guys on the team. He's a superstar, so you run the risk of him coming in and being too big for everyone else and messing with the chemistry. I don't necessarily know how much I like James Harden's fit with the Sixers specifically because of how they're constructed right now. But how about Bradley Beal in a Sixers uniform? I think Bradley Beal would actually be a better fit for the Sixers than James Harden. Because a front court with Beal and Maxi would be straight dirty. Those are two guys who have very comparable and similar skill sets and can score at a pretty good frequency. So I like putting Beal with Maxi. Plus, Beal seems to be a lot more laid back and a better fit for this team. He's kind of more of a follow the leader type guy than I'm going to be the leader. I'm going to be the star of the show on a nightly basis. So I think Bradley Beal would be really good for the Sixers. To me, Harden and Beal are the 1A and 1B of this year's trade deadline. Harden is everyone's first choice because of what he's accomplished in the past and because he instantly makes a team a finals contender. But it seems like everyone's forgetting about Bradley Beal because he's being compared to James Harden. He's still a superstar in his own right. So that's just something for Sixers fans to think about while their team goes out and looks to acquire additional pieces. I also think Eric Gordon coming off the bench would be a really nice consolation prize if Daryl Morey was unable to get Harden or Beal. Because Gordon is someone who's proven throughout his career that he can score points. Like he's never been the greatest on defense. He struggled to move the ball around at times. Yeah, he's taken a number of different questionable shots. And I get that from that lens, you don't want him taking the basketball away from some of the other guys on the second team. But just imagine what having a true number two point guard would do for this team. You're definitely not getting the same level of upgrade that you would get with Mr. 1A and Mr. 1B. But if Daryl Morey's going to put his hands under his legs and say, I'm not giving up the rest of the entire team for Harden or Beal. Go out and get Eric Gordon. At least do something. And I also think, I'm going to throw this name out there, perhaps a trade for Bogdan Bogdanovich could be in store as well. Every team could use a scrappy end-to-end guy like Bogdan, and frankly, the Sixers are no different. He's a really important guy to have once you get to the playoffs. You want to make teams earn it from the field. 
The Sixers have done a really good job defensively under Doc Rivers to this point, but I want to see guys fighting more for their shots. I want to see more blocks in the lane. I want to see a defensive juggernaut that plays complementary basketball and has transitions and easy buckets after blocks and steals, those types of things. And I think adding a guy like Bogdan can accomplish all of the above. But no matter what happens, I do believe that Daryl Morey cannot stand Pat this time around because the Eastern Conference is up for grabs and he needs to do something, anything, in order to improve this team. That's all I have for this week's edition of Stern Spotlight. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Go out and have some buffalo wings, some drinks with your friends, whatever you party folks out there like to do. And I'll be back to you next week with another edition of Stern Spotlight.